Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the 10th chapter of John, John chapter 10. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. Um, And this morning, God willing, we will complete not just the 10th chapter of John's gospel, but a a major subsection. As we read, you'll notice the last few verses close something out. Jesus ends or brings to a conclusion or solidifies his relationship with the Jews in Jerusalem. It's been going since chapter 5. So let's read John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. We'll have a word of prayer. John chapter 10. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them God's, to whom, the script, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. O Lord God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be among those counted as your sheep, that we would hear your voice and follow you, that like those who heard John's testimony, we would believe. Guard us from the error of these Jews in Jerusalem. Help us to see the glory of your Son, who is one with you and dwells in you and you in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I suggested that John chapter 10 here, Jesus' exchange with these Jews in Jerusalem, brings to an end a series of exchanges started in chapter 5. Um, the, part of the clue is John's use of the word again. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again 
to stone him. Well, no one has tried to stone him since, I think, chapter 7 or 8. And then in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. John is connecting the action that happens here with action in the past. This is not the first time these people have tried to stone him. This is not the first time these people have tried to arrest him. And so this, this ending section, verses 40 to 42, I think brings to a close the, the, the arc of the Jews in Jerusalem. They will act again in chapter 11 and 12. But any, any movement, any culling from among them of those of faith, and we've seen that, that there's been division among them. Some of them are saying, this man has a demon. Others saying, does a demon open the eyes of the blind? That, that's brought to a conclusion. They, at the end of this passage, are opposed to Jesus, and Jesus enacts a strategic retreat back to the wilderness and the countryside. So we're going to look at this in two parts. First, the son does the works of his father. Jesus exposes the Jews' hypocrisy. Jesus exposes the Jews' hypocrisy. We read the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, which makes sense of that. We've got to see what came before. Why would they pick up stones? Well, it's because of the last thing he said in verse 30. I suggested to you last week that when they came to him and they said, tell us plainly, we're not to read them as sincere. These are not legitimate seekers. These are not people genuinely trying to sort out who Jesus is. As we see, they, they've got a pretty clear opinion. They're looking for something to hang him on. They're looking for a sound bite they can get him with. And Jesus tells them, I've told you already, and you don't believe. Well, they, they don't like what he says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. And so they picked up stones again to stone him. We've seen the conflict started back, if you turn back to chapter 5, quickly, where Jesus first encounters the Jews in Jerusalem. If you remember in chapter 5, he heals the man by the pool. And they don't like the fact that he's working on the Sabbath, and he tells the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. And Jesus, rather than de-escalating, escalates in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father's working until now, and I'm working, which is a radical claim. Jesus is claiming divine prerogative. What the Father does on the Sabbath, he does on the Sabbath. And here we see their first attempt to kill him. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The controversy continuing here in chapter 10 is the same controversy. The Jews in Jerusalem don't like Jesus' claims to self-importance and power and authority. That's the reason they're trying to get him. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 58. Again in Jerusalem to the Jews. The most clear and unambiguous claim of deity, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the name God revealed at the burning bush. Jesus here is not just simply claiming to be God, but a particular God, the God who revealed himself at the burning bush. And they, they don't misunderstand. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So John would have us connect their current attempt to stone Jesus with his previous attempts. 
And, and the constant theme is Jesus in Jerusalem with the Jews and challenges and offenses over his claim to deity, his claim to authority. Which means their, their question, tell us plainly, is not asked sincerely. In fact, what Jesus does here is expose the corruption, expose their hypocrisy. He's going to prove to them that they're not treating him fairly, but they're, they're, they're weighing him with bias. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, which then elicits Jesus' challenge. Jesus' challenge. There's sort of some sarcasm here. He says to them, for what good work are you going to stone me? I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He's asking for warrant. Before he simply left, here he, he, he sort of stares them down. They pick up stones to stone him. He doesn't retreat. He actually challenges them. He, he's insisting they justify what they're attempting to do. So Jesus' challenge, for which good work are they going to stone him? And Jesus' point here is that he has many works, and they're good. In John's gospel, we could cite a number of them. We, could, we know about the wedding at Cana and the water that turned to wine. But more publicly, there is Jesus healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. There's Jesus healing the man by the pool in chapter 5. There's Jesus feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. There's Jesus healing the man who was born blind. Jesus has done many mighty, powerful, good works in John's gospel. A number of them have set the city abuzz. Jesus says, okay, for which one of those are you, are you going to stone me? Um, his many good works, and they are good. And don't also miss the fact that his works are from the Father. This is going to be a critical piece of Jesus' argument. It's not just that Jesus is working mighty works. It's not just that he's doing powerful signs. He's arguing, and he's been arguing, that his signs, properly understood, his signs, seen rightly, are of a peace and a character with his Father. It's most obvious to see that God the Father fed the Israelites in the wilderness. He cared for them. And Jesus, out in the wilderness, feeds the 5,000. It's, it's a similar work. If you know the Father, Jesus says, you'll recognize in Jesus' works the Father. Jesus, after all, said, if you turn back to chapter 5, very briefly, in 19, Jesus insists, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So Jesus is insistent the works he does should remind you, should look like, should smell like the Father. And so Jesus points to his many mighty good works, all of which the Father has given him to do. And he says, which one of these has offended you so much that you're trying to kill me? The Jews' answer is simple. <laughs> They're ignoring his good works. They ignore his works. They can't account for them. And again, one of the significant contrasts between Jesus' miracles, the disciples' miracles, and today's miracle workers is no one in the first instance argued Jesus wasn't doing miracles. Sometimes they'll attribute them to Satan. Here, they'll simply ignore them. But what you don't hear is what, what works. Now, everyone knows Israel is, is talking about Jesus' mighty works. These are undisputed. They ignore Jesus' works. Now, interestingly, as this, as this conflict escalates, chapter 10 is going to end with Jesus retreating. In chapter 11, Jesus will return to a summons from Mary and Martha because their brother 
Lazarus is ill, he dies, and Jesus will work a work there they can no longer ignore. Here they're going to ignore his works. He, he challenges them to consider his works. They ignore his works. But t- turn to chapter 11 just briefly. He's going to give them a work in chapter 11 they can't ignore. And in 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So they can ignore Jesus' signs for now in chapter 10, but come chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus, they, they can't ignore him anymore. Jesus insists and will insist they consider his works, his signs. But here, their response, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, which is to say we have no explanation for your good works. We have nothing to say about your good works. We've got you on blasphemy. It's as simple as that, Jesus. That's their response. They ignore his works. Now, notice the the irony in which John writes. Their charge is exactly wrong. Look at, look at what they say word for word. They say, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That is exactly backwards. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus, in the first instance, is God, and then in verse 14, and the word became flesh. They're at charge, you, being a man, make yourself God. We know The great miracle is Jesus being God made himself man. Now, they don't know this, but the reader sees the dramatic irony. Their complaint and their charge is exactly backwards. What we worship is that the one who was himself God and did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, emptied himself, and took the form of a slave. No, we know that Jesus being God made himself man. They have it exactly backwards backwards and they don't pick up on the irony but we the reader do pick up on the irony so that's their response jesus said for which one of my works you're going to stone me they have nothing to say about his works because there's nothing they could say but they insist they've got him on blasphemy which then brings up jesus defense jesus defense verse 34 jesus answered them is it not written in your law i said you are god's If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now this is a very interesting argument. And I'll pause, give you a little bit of biography. About 20 years ago, when I was at Word of Life Bible Institute, they had a a week-long evangelism trip. And I was in New York City before the towers fell. And I was in a park witnessing with a group and I came across a Jehovah Witness on a park bench and he 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 silenced me it was I was I was greatly ashamed and it bugged me it still bugs me um, well no because Je- one of the differences with Jehovah Witnesses and there are many um, they're rightly understood to be a cult is they do not believe that Jesus is God and they believe he's a great being um, but they do not believe he is God. And so as I got into a discussion with him, he would throw out challenges at me, and I'd answer the first couple ones. I think I got three or four of them before he threw this out to me. He threw this out to me, and I had no answer. I, I basically, when he threw out, and I'll explain to you that the difficulty or the apparent difficulty here, I, I had no answer. And so I, got, I've, I hope he's listening on the podcast because I got one now. 
And, uh, well, no, but the, the argument goes, the argument goes, if Jesus really is claiming to be God, if he's fully claiming capital G God, then when they say to him, you being a man, make yourself out to be God, why doesn't Jesus go, exactly, yes, you understand me rightly. Why instead does Jesus make this argument? Doesn't it look as though Jesus is actually saying, no, no, I don't mean, I don't mean to be equal with God when I say I'm the son of God. That, that was the argument he threw at me. And at the time, I said to him, I, I don't know, I'd have to look that up. And then he said very patronizingly, and I might add infuriatingly, that's okay, keep studying, I'm sure you'll figure it out. <sighs> anyway, today I give my answer. <laughs> um, so let's first consider Jesus' argument and try to figure out, is Jesus dodging the claim of deity? And why does he answer this way? Now, Jesus' argument is in the form of a syllogism. It's premise one, premise two, conclusion. Premise one is um, Psalm 82, 6 calls mortal men gods. That's the first premise. If you turn back to Psalm 82, you'll see that in this, God rebuking probably human Jewish judges says... Let's pick it up in verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. You shall fall like any prince. And so there's a certain amount of irony here. You're these mighty, powerful men. You're gods. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to knock you down. And so Psalm 82 unambiguously refers, and we could discuss who the referent is, and there's a good discussion we had. We can talk about that in the ABF. But what's obvious is people that God will kill, men, are referred to as gods. It is biblical, therefore. There's at least some warrant. That's, that's the first point that Jesus makes. Psalm 82, 6 calls mortal men gods. And he calls them sons of the Most High. Point two. Scripture cannot be broken. That may seem obvious, but this is one of actually the few places in John's gospel where we see Jesus clearly state his high view of Scripture. In all the other gospels, we get statements like heaven and earth will pass away, but not a jot or tittle will pass in the law. This is John's example of Jesus' high view of Scripture. In other words, Jesus is entirely going to defend himself and defend his usage because in one verse, in one psalm, Scripture refers to some men as gods and sons of the Most High. So how does, how does Jesus' argument work? It, it's pretty straightforward. If they are purely going to hang their entire charge of blasphemy on the fact that Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of God, then they haven't met a standard to accuse him of blasphemy. Why? Because, at least in some sense, Scripture can refer to people other than God as gods. Scripture can refer to other people at least in some sense, as sons of the Most High. So if all they have is, hey, hey, you, you say you're the Son of God, so what? And, and this gets back, I think, to Jesus' point, what he means by these categories. And as I begin to try to answer, why does Jesus answer this way? He's quite comfortable calling himself the Son of God if we understand what he means and what he doesn't mean. It's why in chapter 5, when he says, um, the, the, my father works on the Sabbath, I work on the Sabbath. The rest of the chapter is Jesus guarding against two misunderstandings in chapter 5. On the one hand, there's the ditch that anyone might think Jesus is claiming to be less than God. 
And so we get those statements just as the father, so the son. The father raises the dead, the son raises the dead. The father gives life to whom he will, the son gives life to whom he will. The other ditch would be polytheism. The view that Jesus is raising himself up, it's competing with, in contrast with, in opposition to the Father. And on that side, guarding against that error, Jesus makes statements like, I can do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my Father doing. He is in perfect lock, step, and harmony with the Father. So Jesus is quite happy to claim to be God, to claim to be the Son of God, if he can define his terms. What he's not happy to do, and what he's doing here, is he's not going to give them the soundbite. He's not going to give them the, the, the quote to, to nail him to a tree, to crucify him. They'll do it anyway. But what he's showing them, and, and this is how he exposes their hypocrisy, and part of why he says your law, these are the religious zealots. These are the people claiming to be very concerned about Scripture. Yes, yes, you've done many mighty signs, but we cannot overlook blasphemy. And Jesus' point is simple. I'm, I'm within scriptural usage. If all you've got is, I claim to be the Son of God, what of it? Scripture refers to other people as gods and sons of God. In other words, you're going to have to do more work than that. You're going to have to press me on what I mean by these things. So then that brings to the conclusion, how then can they charge Jesus with blasphemy? And here Jesus makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If Scripture, which cannot be broken, and the point there being you can't simply say that's a one-off. No, no, Scripture gives us the category that it is at times permissible to refer to some people in some circumstances as gods, to refer to some people in some circumstances as sons of the Most High. That's a permissible category. Well, if Scripture gives us that and Scripture can't be broken, what exactly is your charge? What exactly is your complaint about Jesus and his usage? If, and then he makes the argument from the lesser to the greater, if Scripture can speak of wicked human judges this way, then how much more so? And here's how he puts it. Um, Verse 36, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? So the Scripture refers to wicked human judges who will be judged and killed by God this way. How much more so? Can the one whom the Father has set apart, the one whom the Father has set apart, the ESV says, (coughs) consecrated or sanctified. Jesus is the Father's set apart one. And there's even some irony here, I think, thematically with with the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication, we know extra biblically, is the Jews' celebration of their attempt to purify, to cleanse, sanctify the temple after it was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. So Jews everywhere in Israel are celebrating a feast they invented. I I don't think it's unlawful, but this law doesn't give it to them because their, their defiled temple was cleansed. Now, again, we know, reading John's gospel, Jesus is the true temple. Remember in in chapter 2 when he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again? And they didn't understand him. But chapter 2, verse 21 says he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the reader knows Jesus is the true temple. And here they are with their made-up holiday, celebrating the cleansing, the purifying of the temple. And the true temple is standing in front of them, and they're blaspheming him. They're accusing him of blasphemy. They're the ones blaspheming. They, they, <laughs> they're, they're celebrating the cleansing of the temple. The temple is standing in front of them, and they're trying to kill him and destroy it. More deep irony. Deep irony. Deep irony. 
the one whom the Father has set apart. Now, this theme of Jesus being sanctified and sanctifying himself will continue. In chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he'll say this, For their sake I consecrate or sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified. Because in John's gospel, the Son is set apart, but his ultimate setting apart will be hanging on the cross. On the cross, Jesus will be set apart, separated from heaven and earth, separated even, in some sense, from the Father, such that he can cry out, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate and final setting apart of the Son of God will happen when he bears the Father's wrath for our sins. Already, in the incarnation, there's a setting apart. The one whom the Father set apart and sent into the world. Not only this, but he is the one the Father has sent into the world. And again, the argument being, if Scripture can refer to sinful, wicked men this way, how much more fitting and appropriate is it that the one the Father has set apart and the one the Father has sent speak this way? What, what exactly is your complaint? They're hypocrites. They, they have no legitimate complaint. Jesus has not committed blasphemy according to any legitimate mosaic standard. That, that's the point. And so finally, why, why does Jesus not just say exactly? Well, because he's trying to show them and part of why he hasn't given them a clear answer, they're not sincerely asking. They're just looking for something to get him with. And so his point here is not to say, yes, yes, you understand me rightly. I am God. He's done that earlier. He's done, he'll do that later. Here his point is, and he answers this way, you guys are hypocrites. You guys are corrupt. You guys claim to be judging by your law, and you're not. That's his point. He's exposing their hypocrisy and their bias and their corruption. Which brings us finally to Jesus' plea. This is Jesus' final plea to them. When they meet again, they will be unified with the Pharisees and they will just try to kill him. Any attempt to win them, any attempt to, 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 to woo them, to draw them to be his disciples ends here. This is it. Jesus says to them this, If I am doing my Father's works, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. So what is Jesus' plea? His plea is this. You must evaluate his works. They want to abstract. They want to take one little soundbite. In one sense, they're similar to our day and age. Forget everything else Jesus did. Forget everything else Jesus said. He said he's the son. He, he says he's the son of God. Gotcha. Well, and Jesus' last point is not, not exactly. That's not enough. But they need to take the whole package deal, what he has said and what he has done. The signs, the works that he does confirm who he is. Jesus has already said earlier in chapter 5 and in chapter 7 and 8, he expects no one to take his claims to being the Messiah, to being the Son of God, purely on his own word. He said plainly, if I testify about myself, my testimony's not true. You've got to take the whole package deal, who he is and what he has said and what he has done together. The works testify, validate him, and he points them to that. Consider his works. They must evaluate his works. And again, he plainly says, look, if my works are not the works of my Father, don't believe me. Which is again to say, I do not expect or demand that you take me on my word alone. If my works don't confirm what I'm saying, don't believe. Okay? Which again is consistent with Mosaic standards of evidence. 
You need the testimony of two or three. And Jesus has already argued that he's got John the Baptist and he's got his works and he's got his father himself and he's got the books of Moses in scripture. He's got multiple witnesses to who he is. But here he points to one of them, his works. And again, if we consider any one of them, we see the character of the father and and, and the, the extraordinary nature of his miracles that no one since the world began, has heard of a man being born blind, being healed. Jesus fashioning eyes for him, as it were, out of clay, like God fashioned the first man in the garden. Jesus making miraculous food. What possible antecedent is that but Israel in the wilderness? Jesus points to his works. Don't believe if he does not do his father's works, but if he does do his father's works, then believe because of the works. Believe because of the work. Set aside their animosity, set aside their bias, and believe because of the works. And what he wants them to believe, and now he returns, I believe, to explaining what he said in verse 30, is this. He wants them to believe and know and come to believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. I think here he's explaining what he meant that they were first offended by when he said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. In what sense are he and the Father one? Well, in the sense that they indwell each other. That's a theological way of speaking of what Jesus says here. There's a true sense in which the Father dwells in or with Jesus, and there's a true sense in which Jesus dwells in or with the Father. They remain distinct. They're not the same person. And yet, they cannot be so separated that they're ever entirely distinct because the Father is with and in Jesus and Jesus is with and in the Father. Jesus speaks about this elsewhere. Turn, turn to uh, chapter 14. There'll be more on this in, in coming weeks, so we can move somewhat quickly here. But in chapter 14, 10 and 11, the upper room. Do not, do you not b- believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's awfully similar to what Jesus is saying right here. He says again, this is, this is important teaching, understanding the absolute unity of the Son with the Father. They're not in opposition. They're not in conflict. Rather, they indwell each other in some sense that's above my head in pay grade, but true. And ultimately, if you turn to chapter 15, we're invited in some sense to share in that. This is what's amazing. Chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus promises that he will abide in us, and then calls on us to abide in him. So Jesus is, is insistent that these Jews in Jerusalem come to know. He's later insistent that his disciples understand the profound unity and oneness with the Father. What does it mean that he and the Father are one? 
It means that they dwell in each other. And then we are invited to share in that indwelling, that unity. Well, this is a profound, profound truth. Did the Jews say, ah, that makes a bit more sense? Do they perk up? Do they ask any questions? No, they try to arrest him again. And again, John highlights that word again. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. They're not listening. They're not paying attention. He's made valid points. They have no rebuttal. They just want what they want, and what they want to do is shut him up and kill him. And whatever crop Jesus was going to gather from them has been gathered. They are now unified in their opposition. And so chapter 10 ends with Jesus' strategic retreat. Jesus' strategic retreat. Jesus avoids the Jews' attacks. Jesus avoids the Jews' attacks. Now, this is a closing of a section that, at least in my study of John, got dwarfed by the closing of the section in chapter 12. It's clearly a closing here in verses 40 to 42. He went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Turn to chapter 12. Um, The bigger section closes there. Verse 36, middle of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So that's the end of this first major section of John's Gospel. Backing out briefly, I suggest the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel are Jesus' public ministry. They're Jesus interacting in public. In contrast to that, verse 13 to 17 is, is Jesus' private ministry with his disciples and with his Father in prayer. The, f- the first 13 chapters cover three or four years, depending on whether or not the unnamed Feast of the Jews in chapter 5 is a Sabbath or not. I mean, not a Sabbath, is, not, is, a, is a Passover or not. Chapters 13 to 17 is three or four hours. It's one evening. And then 18 to 21 is the passion, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus. So chapter 12 here is ending Jesus' public ministry. So what, what is being ended here at the end of chapter 10? I think it's, it's the ark of Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to retreat. He's going to remain there. We've, we've, we're done talking. We're done persuading. They won't listen. They won't hear him. They want to kill him. They want to arrest him. And this is the reason he stays out of, out of Jerusalem. Look in chapter 11 when they get the summons. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? So, so they're well aware now that the, 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 the temperature, the status quo is kill Jesus, arrest Jesus And not just the high-ups, not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but the Jews in Jerusalem, a pretty broad and generic term. David's city, the capital of Israel, God's chosen people, 
The leadership and the people are in lockstep. Arrest, kill Jesus. And so Jesus retreats. They may view this as a, as a partial victory. We know from reading the gospel, he's just ready to make a final approach and a final conflagration in chapter 11 and 12. So let's see what we see here quickly. Jesus returns to where he was baptizing at first. So we come full circle. We come all the way back to where we began. Where does Jesus first appear on the scene? Turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Jesus first enters our narrative. He shows up in the prologue, but he first enters our narrative in verse 29. At the camp of John the Baptist. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus first enters the stage of our narrative here. Well, now here's where he returns to. This is where he was baptized by John. John's been arrested and executed. And here Jesus and his disciples return to where they started, return to where he first entered our, our pages and in contrast to the opposition that we got in Jerusalem, the unified rejection of Jesus by the Jews in Jerusalem, we get this. He returned again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is wonderful. The other Gospels highlight John's activity and emphasis as a baptizer. We call him John the Baptist. John's Gospel, he's John the Witness. That's, that's the emphasis in John's Gospel. And even this final note, this final tipping of the hat to John is emphasizing on his witness. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness. Three times, he's a witness. He came to bear witness. He's a witness. Then when John enters the stage in verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, or he witnessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John's emphasis in the gospel of John is that John, it, John's aware that he baptized. John, who we call the Baptist, is a witness. And here we see the lingering fruitful effects of his ministry. John has been arrested. John has been killed at this point. And yet his witness is still bearing fruit. I remind you to be faithful in season and out. In due season you will reap, even if others reap the works of your faithfulness. John the Baptist was dismayed when he was put in prison. We know in the other Gospels. And he sent his disciples to Jesus saying, what gives? What's going on? Or, or, have we been mistaken? Here we see that John's faithfulness for a very short period of ministry is still bearing fruit. In contrast to Jerusalem and the, the hardened stance against him, many come to Jesus. And what do we know about them? These are many who remember what John said. These are people under the sway of his ministry. These are people who'd interacted with John. And what they're remembering is, hey, what John said about this man, 
It, it, was all, it was all right on. It was all true. And then the text links that with their current faith in Jesus. So we see many came to him there. John's witness is still bearing fruit. John's witness bears more fruit. And many believed in him there. Many believed in him here. John came that all might believe. And even after John is taken off the stage, even after John's been arrested and beheaded, we know from the other Gospels, people are still coming to faith. People are still believing because of his testimony of who Jesus was. And now the stage is set for the final conflagration. Jesus will return to Jerusalem one more time. He'll return in chapter 11. It'll be in the Passion Week. He'll go into hiding with his disciples. He'll teach them. He'll spend one final night with them. He'll go out and pray. He'll be arrested and he'll be crucified. The the stage is set for the final conflict. The polarizing of the Jews in Jerusalem is complete. They're set. Jesus retreats strategically with his disciples back to where we began, back where things started. And now the final approach, the great working of the sign of the raising of Lazarus is ahead of us. And so as we turn to celebrate the Lord's table, let us celebrate that we are those who have heard his voice. We are those who have seen his words and his works. And like the officer sent to arrest Jesus concluded, no one ever spoke like this man. I hope and trust as, as, as you um, sit here today that you have come to faith and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Um, I'll invite the men forward now. This time, let's have a word of prayer while they come forward. Lord God, we marvel at your grace. Not that Jesus, being man, made himself God, but being God and at your side made himself man and came on our behalf. And he endured such hostility from sinful men, ultimately being set apart on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin willingly on our behalf. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us marvel at this grace. Let us evidence that we are your sheep by hearing your voice and following you. Guard us from the self-righteous error of these Jews in Jerusalem. Rather, give us faith. In Jesus' name, amen.